Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's so good to have you here today, worshiping with us here in the building. And if you are joining us by live stream, welcome. Welcome, everyone. I just got a couple of announcements uh, that I want to share with you. Um, If you're here in the chapel today and you're not part of our email chain, it's the primary way that we uh, share announcements and prayer requests. We would encourage you to go out to the Welcome Center and fill out one of these cards. And then you could get on the email list. You'll get an email during the week of the things that are going on here at the chapel, as well as the significant prayer requests that we're sharing with you. Uh, If you're um, on our live stream, what I would encourage you to do is to reach out to admin at thechapelnj.org. And if you send that email there, they'll put you on the email list as well. I just have a couple of other announcements uh, this morning. I'm looking forward. I can't believe it. We're in the second day of spring. It's actually looking uh, really nice outside and feeling great outside. Looking forward to taking a little bit of a hike later today, hopefully. Um, So the weather is getting good, and we are now moving towards Holy Week. And every week in our lives should be a Holy Week. Every day of our lives should be a Holy Week. But this Holy Week, this special time where we go from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. So next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to have, and on our Palm Service Palm Service Sunday, we're going to have the Hubbing Home Ladies Choir. It's part of our tradition here. Look forward to hearing them sing and give testimony next week. That'll be great to do. Uh, Then Good Friday, we're going to be having a Good Friday service at 6 p.m. Look to your emails for that. And then, Lord willing, on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to have two um, services, one starting at 9 a.m. and the next one starting at 10.30 a.m. Once again, look to your email to get information about those services. Before we open our service this morning, I just want to share with you two verses from our family devotional last night from Psalm 9. I want you to think about the I wills that David says here when he talks about his worship. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your holy name, O Most High. Do you hear it? I will, I will, I will, I will. There's an intentionality into David's worship. There's a purpose to David's worship. He is worshiping God with his whole heart. He's reminding himself of what God has done. He's exalting in God alone. And then he says, I'm going to praise your name. I pray that we're not just singing here in this building. I pray that we're singing out into this lost and dark world, singing the message of hope and joy and peace. Let that refrain through your life out into this world. Would you pray with me as we begin? Uh, So, Lord, I I just thank you and I praise you for, for who you are. I praise you for the fact that we know who we are, Father. So many people today are struggling with who they are, their identity. Father, I thank you for the fact that we know who our identity is. We are in you if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. I thank you for the fact that we get a chance to worship you this morning. I pray that you would remind us to give thanks to you and help us to do it with our whole heart, a devoted heart to you. Father, I pray that you would remind us to recount of all the wonderful things that you've done. Help us to be glad and exalt in you, and let us sing praise to your holy name. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.
everybody. Happy to have you here on the live stream at home. Listen, God is able. He will never fail. God is able. He will never fail. He is almighty God. He's greater than, greater than all we see. Greater than all we see. He's done great things. He has done great things. Lift it up. He defeated the grave. Race to life. Race to life. Our God is able. In His name, we God is with us. God is on our side. God is with us. God is on our side. I'll make a way. He will make a way. Far above all we know. Far above all we know. He's done great things. He has done great things. Lift it up. Lift it up, he defeated the grave, raised to with us. He will go before us. God is with us. He will go before. He will never leave us. He will never leave. He is faithful. God is for us. He has all. never fail. He will never fail us. He will never fail us. God is with us. He will go before. He will never leave us. He will never leave us. God is for us. He has all. I'll never fail. He will never fail us. He will never fail us. Lift it up. He defeated the grave. Race to life, and our God is able in His name as we overcome. For the Lord, our God is able. Lift it up, lift it up. He defeated the grave. Race to life, race to life.
Praise the name. And I'm not going to pronounce that second word, so I'm going to say it wrong. It's anastasis, and it means resurrection. It's a Latin term. This song is all about resurrection, singing that, you know, classic story of Jesus' uh, journey to the cross, you know, his death, his resurrection, and our salvation. It doesn't get old. That story doesn't get old. And we sing it in every single song. So this is a song that's all about all of us joining together to praise the name of our Lord, our God. It says a lot of words like, we will do this. We will sing this. We will sing for endless days. And that means Christians, of course, in general. But that means us right now together as a congregation, as a group. So sing when you're able, once you get the feel of it. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my savior on that cursed tree his body bound Drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone, Messiah still in all alone. Oh, praise the name! Oh, praise the Yeah. 
song I sing thy power to save I'll sing thy power to Thank you that only you have the power to save. Only you can redeem. Nothing else, not my good works, not my good thoughts. Only you can save, Lord. Thank you that sinners can come to you, Lord, and can be washed away, wash their sins away, Lord. We thank you this morning for that. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope for the future. We know that you're coming back to redeem this world, to fix the problems. Some of us might see you face to face before that happens. And we thank you for eternity. That's something we have to face every day, Lord. As my aunt used to say, eternity is forever. So the choice is before us. Look to temporary gains and temporary goals on this side. Or focus on eternity, which is forever. Lord, we want to be with you. We want to be used by you this morning, Lord. God, we thank you for this time of worship. We ask that you continue to be glorified as we hear your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us so that we can be redeemed and forgiven. We ask God now that you would give us ears to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to uh, see each of you here this morning. I I think that one of my greatest delights in life, and I feel like I have a lot to be grateful for, a lot to uh, give thanks to God for, but I think one of the greatest, most joyful spaces in my life or places in my life is Sunday morning. And hearing a crowd of people singing and praising God. I just... Nothing in a sustaining way. Grandkids are awesome, right? They're beautiful. They're the best looking in the world. Right? But man, can they be annoying. (laughs) I tell my daughter, they're little sinners. And they just came from bigger sinners. I look forward to driving all the way down. You get all the way down there and one's throwing a fit. And you're like, come on. (laughs) Disappointment, right? But there's just, to me, nothing, nothing like singing together with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And I just, I, I, with all the depth of my heart, believe that by the Spirit as we sing, 
truths. It's not things that we're not unfamiliar with. It's stuff that we know so well, as Carmel said earlier. But when you sing that truth together, there, there are lights going on where truth becomes clearer and more precious and more pertinent to the circumstance that you're in today. And I just, I just think that is one of the most beautiful blessings of corporate worship. And I hope, I hope you come ready to sing and to praise the name of the Lord Most High. Well, in life, one of the things that you can count on if you want to lead a life of discouragement is to trust in human leaders. Uh, sometimes people start coming to the chapel and they, they'll express that they're really grateful for the pastoral team and, uh, you know, just the, the way things, that God has just set things up here. This is not a human design, the way that we function with the uh, three of us doing the teaching. It's, it's God's provision for a very specific season in our church life for which I am very grateful. And people express gratitude for that regularly. Uh, almost in a way that makes me a little uncomfortable. And I, I sometimes I, just, I, I said, just hang on one second. Give us a little time and we will disappoint you. <laughs> okay, we just need a little more time. Uh, and I, so never put your trust in human leaders. Okay, because that is a sure path to discouragement. Never put your hopes in a mate because every mate will at some time disappointing kids and grandkids. They're in every realm of life. The best boss in the world one day will disappoint you. And so it's important that we keep our eyes focused on the right leader. And this text that we look at today is an exaltation of the divine king, Jesus, the king whom you can trust. And my aim, my hope is that by the time we get to the end of this text, you, you have a deeper appreciation for who Jesus is and a deeper hope in his saving and redeeming work on Calvary's cross. In our text, Matthew, Mark chapter 12, you can turn there real quick. I didn't say that, sorry. I guess it's up on the screen now. Matthew, or Mark 12. In this text, we are in the middle of the week between Palm Sunday and what we would call Easter Friday or the day of the crucifixion. We're, we're somewhere in there, very likely, uh, most scholars say that we're, we're late in the day on Tuesday is probably where we find ourselves in this text. In this text, we find Jesus is teaching in the temple. Okay, on Sunday, he had cleansed the temple and the leadership raged internally against him, but couldn't do anything because of the degree of popularity he had with the crowd. So that's the setting. We're in the temple, the place where people from all nations are supposed to be able to meet with God. And there Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd. Verse 35 says this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked. Now, here's the change in the text. Doug last week did a beautiful job of presenting the questions that were being posed to Jesus in an attempt to trip him up. Okay? Doug called them gotcha questions. Okay? It's a question that's meant to expose some degree of inconsistency in who you are or in what you say. Okay, now Jesus is going to turn the tables in a very capable fashion and he's going to pose a question to the crowd that has in its focus 
the religious leadership of the day. So while Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, that's location, he said, why do the teachers of the law, that is the scribes, say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, he's asking the question in, in, with the insinuation that they are limiting who the future coming son of God is, the son of David. They have a domesticated view of him. And it's that domesticated view that he aims to explode. Why do they say that he is the son of David? And, and if you go back just in previous texts, you'll find that they've answered that question. In Mark 22, uh, or, or Matthew 22 and in Mark, that question had been posed to them. Who do you say that the son of man is? And they'll say that he's the son of David, the Messiah. Jesus then says, David himself. Now, who is David? David is the physical line through whom the Messiah is prophesied to come, right? So the Messiah is called throughout the New Testament the son of David, speaking of his royal pedigree. So David, the ultimate king, the esteemed king, speaking by the Holy Spirit, which is to say that his words were in fact inspired and authorized by God himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, he declared the Lord. And if you go back to Psalm 110, you find it's all in caps. Yahweh... The creator God said to my Lord, which means Adonai or supreme ruler. Okay, there is an equality between these titles. The Lord said to my Lord. The my in this verse is who? He's quoting from Psalm 110 and David is the author of Psalm 110. It's David's Lord. Okay, so watch what he says. The Lord Jehovah said to to David's Lord... And you're going to start to get connections. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. And the one connection I would make for you as I read that is after Christ ascended on high, after the crucifixion, after victory over the grave and death itself, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, and that becomes an important connection. Okay, the Lord said to my Lord, Father said to Son, who is David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Right? And that's the question that Jesus now poses to the religious establishment. By the way, I didn't let kids dismiss for junior church. So if you have kids and they're supposed to go, I think I actually saw some scooting out and I forgot to mention that. So. Okay, that's my ADD moment for the day, all right? David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? David calls him divine. How can he be his son? And the answer is, if you go back to the book of Matthew and you read the lineage of Jesus, you'll find that in the lineage of Christ is royalty, King David. And his future offspring is Jesus Christ the Son of God and Son of Man. Okay, now Jesus is going to push on this idea of identity, and the text says the loud large crowds listen to him with delight. All right, so scene one in what we're going to work through today is a bold theological assertion or claim that Jesus is going to make. The question of the text is, 
who is the son of David? In fact, in this case, who is Jesus? Because in the triumphant entry, they had given him great praise. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the son of David, right? And we know that the religious establishment responded to those accolades. They said, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. This is on the edge of blasphemy. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, if they don't speak, the stones will cry out. And the Pharisees are like, all right, let them say it. (laughs) They don't want to deal with rocks to speak. The idea of the text simply is that this affirmation of the divinity of Christ and of the royalty of Christ is an unstoppable proclamation that must be made. And when it is made and when it is yielded to and accepted by individuals, they will come under the lordship and authority of Christ. The question Jesus poses is how can the scribes, the religious leaders, say that the Messiah is merely the son of David when David himself says that the son of David, the Messiah, is so much more. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that the religious establishment of Jesus this day had a domesticated view of the son of David. They did not see him for who he really was. They did not see him for who David said he was by the Spirit. Right? And so that's the kind of the thrust of what Jesus is saying. David himself, verse 36, speaking by the Holy Spirit, made a proclamation that is inscripturated. The Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah God said to the Son of God, sit at my right hand, forecasting post-cross until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David understood that his coming son was not merely human. He was in fact divine. David saw his son as greater than himself. And the implication of this observation that's being made in front of the Pharisees is if David subordinated himself in prophecy to his future son, because he was in fact God himself, then how can the scribes say that he is merely the offspring of David? Okay, now what that means is this. If they can identify Jesus as merely the offspring of David, royal pedigree, but not divine pedigree, they can bring him down. But if he is in fact divine, he cannot be ignored. Okay, so Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament portion of scripture in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So if you were going to say, what portion of Old Testament scripture is quoted most frequently in the New Testament, the answer would be Psalm 110. You read through the book of Hebrews, you find many other implications that come out of this text. One of those truths is this, that this coming son of David is in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And he is the king that is forever, which points to his divinity. 
Okay, so what the, what the Pharisees or the scribes don't want to do is they don't want to admit to the true identity of Jesus because if they do, it crushes them. Because Jesus has been clearly pointing out strong weaknesses in the religious establishment. And what they want more than anything is authority, not God's rulership and leadership in their lives. And so in quoting this text, Jesus is just simply giving clarity to who he is. Okay? So lesson one, Jesus is the divine son of David king. And after the cross, in which he is apparently defeated, by resurrection he will be exalted to the right hand of the Father with his enemies under his feet. David's kingdom, impressive. Jesus' kingdom, even more so, because he is David's greater son. So my, my, my application of that text is this. Jesus is the divine king. You should trust You can trust and follow him. Okay, now, the text moves on. And by the way, that idea of him being divine simply means he he has unlimited knowledge and unlimited capacity. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. Therefore, he cannot disappoint in terms of ignorant or unjust judgment. He can be trusted. The text goes on with an interesting connection. Verse 38. It says, as Jesus taught, he said, watch out for the teachers of the law. And the word that you could, if you you write in your Bible, the word scribes, they were technical experts in Mosaic law. They were the people you would go to if you said, I'm not quite sure about this or how this truth applies in this circumstance of my life in terms of a moral decision or a ceremonial decision. And they would... They would deliberate and come up with a a, a decision. They were essentially lawyers of the law. Jesus said, they like to walk around in flowing robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Okay? There are few texts in the Bible that are as sobering in their content than that text. These are described by Jesus as unscrupulous leaders. They are in the culture insiders, highly esteemed, experts in the law. They were the lawyers of their day. Many of the people saw through them, but had little power to do anything about their abusive lifestyles. Jesus first identifies their habits. They like to walk in around in long flowing robes. They like to create spectacle. One writer called them people that glide about like ecclesiastical swans. 
They were early power dressers, people that dressed for success. When they went to the marketplace in their attire, they sought treasured public recognition. They loved people's affirmation and were beholden, in fact, to it. In the synagogue, they wanted the front seats. They wanted the elevated seats up on the platform, platform where they could be seen. And at banquets, they wanted preferential treatment. So they were using their position for personal advantage and benefit. And of that, Jesus has nothing but a strong indictment. Verse 40, he says, they use prayer as cover, as theater. Notice what it says. For a show, they make lengthy prayers. They've turned prayer into theater. They've turned prayer into a way that when they're speaking in their prayers, the words are so grandiose and amazing and stunning that people sit back and say, I wish I could pray like that. Okay, everything done for theater. Jesus is ripping off the mask of theater. And in verse 40, he gives their indictment. They devour widows' houses, literally their estates, because it's hard to eat a house. Okay, so you got to think, what it, when Jesus says they devour widows' houses, he's not saying they're out there gnawing on the wood. Okay, he's saying their estate is something that they know through manipulation they can get their hands on. They are literally extortionists who take the privilege of their position and use it for personal benefit. Scribes did not receive a commission for their teaching. And in fact, it was unethical to use good deeds or the law to magnify oneself, one writer said, or as a spade to dig with, to get stuff for oneself. But the scribes of Jesus' day had found a way to work around this prohibition And instead of using the Torah to earn a salary, the scribes encourage the belief that the people will be blessed by God if they support the scribes, financially and practically. Here's the simple truth. In Jesus' day, the rich could afford to be generous, but widows were often more tender-hearted than the financially astute. And so what the scribes did habitually, and you find this as you go through the Old Testament, what they did habitually was take advantage of and extort the generosity and the, 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 the funds that these incredibly impoverished people had in their savings. So what they would do is they would say, well, I'll offer to take care of your finances. And while they did it, they would steal them blind. And Jesus knows. And so first he tells them who he is. He's the exalted king. And then he tells them what the exalted king sees. And from that exalted position, he pronounces an indictment against them that is stunning and shocking. His promise is that he will judge those who pray on the less fortunate. Then this text leads to their future. Jesus says to them in the most stunning statement, these men will be punished most severely. Folks, that is shocking. And what Jesus is telling you, scribes have a future. 
those that take advantage of people in unfortunate circumstances have a future before God himself. And in this case, God himself is speaking to those who, take, who use position to seek advantage while Jesus uses his position to give advantage. Folks, don't miss the contrast between the rabbi Jesus, the teacher, and the other teachers. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came through his self-sacrifice as a leader, as God himself, to give you an advantage for eternity to free you from your sin. And as I, as I read this, I was mindful of Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus says of these Pharisees in Matthew, he says, you tithe herb seeds. Like you, you put them on the table and you cannot, one for God, nine for me, one for God, nine for me. And you go through this painstaking commitment to obedience to the technical aspects of the law. But he says of them, but you neglect the weightier matters, justice and mercy. You're putting dots on the eyes, but there is no text. And Jesus calls them out, particularly as you go through the New Testament in the context of their treatment of the less fortunate, namely widows. And in Isaiah 10, 1, he says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Folks, I want to tell you something. God takes dishonesty and extortion seriously. Because he's God, he sees in the dark. Jesus, the divine king, is just. I fear for modern day religious figures. I fear for myself. For people who promise prosperity from God in in return for support of their lavish lifestyles. They practice spiritual abuse. And they devour and they face a sobering assessment. I say to the church today, you better be seriously discerning about the things you support and about the things that you watch on media and about the things that you hear at every level. Because abuse for personal advantage, taking for personal advantage is pervasive I fear extremes today in the realm of politics amongst those who lack concern for the needy and those who exploit the needy for power and personal gain. When our aim as Christians is to be disciples of the just, rightful king by loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Sadly, the church has often accommodated the culture. Two main examples, we live in an age where this is kind of the hot button, but it is part of the story today. The hot buttons historically 
were child labor. When the church acquiesced, knowing it to be wrong. And slavery. When the church knew it was wrong. And at times, prominent historical preachers preached against and then later practiced the same. Thankfully, many of the people who spoke up early against the abuses of the day were Christian leaders. Some were falling down and some at great risk were standing up. Think of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany who joined the opposition to Hitler as a theologian, who was a pacifist, but set aside being a pacifist for the greater cause and the greater good to stand for what was right. May God help us not to be like these unscrupulous leaders in any way. I want to say this to you this morning. If you are in a situation where you are facing injustice, it could be in your marriage, it could be in your workplace, it can be in your neighborhood, it can be at your school. Trust the divine king who is faithful and true to bring justice at the right time. This is the essence of Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the risen Lord. And if he could conquer the grave, he could deal with my daily struggles. Here's the key. He will do it in his time. And he will often use the struggle that you're going through to glorify and to exalt his name and to shape your life into a vessel that is fit for the master's use. The third scene. Jesus sat opposite verse 41, the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. This is the most kind of amazing story. It's kind of odd. It would be like, I'd say, uh, hey, Ed and... uh, Steve, let's put some chairs out by the offering box. Kind of watch what's going on. It's like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> but you got to remember who Jesus is. You got to rem- remember what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 10 or 11. I'm forgetting which place. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And in that, Jesus was saying, this, this is my Domain. It's just not obvious yet. And so in this account, he calls his disciples and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he brings them beside the offering boxes, which were 13 boxes that had a trumpet-shaped entry point. So when you brought your coins, there, were no, uh, there was no paper currency at that time. So when you brought your coins, you would have them in a bag typically, and you would pour them into this trumpet. They were called shafars. They're a trumpet-shaped entry point to a box. And you can imagine what that was like. Because remember the kinds of people that inhabited the temple were people like scribes who 
were ecclesiastical swans drifting around looking for recognition. So you can imagine what it was like. And many of the writers from that time will, will demonstrate that it, during Passover, there were hundreds of thousands of people who would come to the temple during this Passover festival. Imagine scores of wealthy people pouring out bags of coins that they have kept up for the year, coins that clinked and clanked as money rolled into the receptacles, making quite a spectacle. In fact, theater. And folks would glance and acknowledge the gifts of the wealthy. Because of the hypocrisy that was so prevalent in the temple, it's not hard to imagine. Jesus turns the theater into a classroom, verse 42. It says, uh, actually the rest of that verse says, they, 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 they uh, sat by the places, they watched the crowd putting in their, their money into the temple treasury. Many people threw in large amounts. In contrast to that, verse 42 begins with but. Okay, so it indicates in the text, there's a shift from many putting in a lot to one putting in a little. And I, I'm not quite sure how to imagine this text. I know one thing. I know that the woman is a widow. I know that she is poor. So she has, in the culture, strikes against her. A woman, a widow, and poor. In this text, Nameless, because her name is not critical to the focus of this account. And I think it kind of adds to the, to the, to the mystery and to the uniqueness of this individual. Widows were not valued. They were disregarded, dismissed, and as the previous text tells us, used all the time for personal advantage. So she comes in unnoticed. She makes her way over to the offering boxes of which there are 13 and Jesus stops everything I don't think he speaks out loud to the crowd but to his disciples he's like wait wait watch watch her and the disciples are thinking she's so average or below average but she captures the eye of the divine king who is just. He takes an unnoticed person and makes her central to this stage. She makes her way to the trumpet boxes, drops in two lepta. Leptas are small copper coins whose value is about an eighth of a penny. And you can just think in terms of our culture today. She was dreadfully poor. The word literally meant thin once. Focus of the text is on the insignificance of her gift in contrast to the many large gifts of the wealthy. Her coins would make little sound, if any, as they fall into the pile of money, unnoticed by all, but not by God. And Jesus stops everything. And he says to his disciples, watch this. And then he proceeds to give an assessment of her gift. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow 
lacking status, by comparison, has put more into the treasury than all of the others, and you might be able to write in the word combined. And there is something about that that just kind of stands up and cries out to us. Jesus notes the size of her sacrifice and love, not the size of her gift. She gave to express her love for God and her trust in God to perhaps relieve the need, relieve the need of another. She would rather offer herself to God in faith than cling to two shekels in hopes of survival. It's powerful. And Jesus sets it up as a contrast. All the gifts made by major donors were eclipsed by her love of God and her love of others. Her gift is not worth much to the world, but it's worth a lot to God. I just want you to let that truth settle in. I have had, in the context of this church, people who can give very little and have expressed that to me honestly. I never ask. And there's a tendency to think that because my gift is small, it doesn't make a difference. All I can say is, read this. Read this. What honors God is deep faith and trust. He is not impressed by theater in our Christian lives. He is the divine king. Theater is invisible to him. He sees only the truth. So that tells me, as I read this text, Tim, be careful how you live. Be careful how you give. Be careful how you pray. And be sure that in everything, you are totally yielded and surrendered to God himself. To the king you can trust. See, I have trust issues. <laughs> if you've been around as long as I have, which some of you are saying, yeah, it's obvious it's pretty long. <laughs> You're around long enough, you will develop trust issues because you know what happens? People will disappoint you. But this text aims to say Jesus never fails. In a world where scribes are ripping them off and they have little to give, they still give the little. And Jesus says that. She put in more. And that is acknowledged by him. The lesson for me that, that starts to jump from this text is Jesus is, divine, is the divine king. He is just. And you can trust him. For me personally, as I, as I read this, one of the applications I put down, be careful who you praise. And be careful what you praise. Because you don't have the eyes of God. Be careful what you think is what you think it is. I don't even know if that's a sentence, but I think you know what I mean. Be careful about making assumptions. That if so-and-so appears this way, that is, everything is as it appears. Jesus is saying, oh, no, it's not. He called these guys hypocrites. Swans amongst what they saw as mud hens. 
And Jesus calls them out. I'm going to tell you something as a church. If we are going to imitate Christ, there are certain things that we need to call out. Because it's what Jesus did. Called a spade a spade. We need to have the courage to do the same. Closing applications. Number one, if you are in an oppressed situation, all I can tell you is this. Keep doing what is right and leave the results with God. My pastor used to say to us all the time, as I was a kid growing up, I remember this. Do what is right and leave the results with God. Folks, here's Jesus tells you clearly, do not take revenge for yourselves. Because God has said, vengeance is mine. I see it all and I always judge rightly. My tendency, overreact. Overjudge. Self-exalt. One day the king is coming. And he is divine. And he is just. Put it in his capable hands. Secondly, and I mean this with all of my heart. There is a little scribe in all of us. I don't mean a little itty bitty scribe. (laughs) I mean the tendencies that describe these people are present and residing in all of us. You know, it's easy to look at this text and say, man, those guys were bad. Man, they were evil. Man, they pulled off a a great theater and they looked in such and such a way and they got all the greetings and all the praise. And to think, thank God I'm beyond that. If you think that way, you're mistaken. God says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. I need to resist pride. I need to resist perversion by imitating the king who is just. And one of the ways I do that, I think, in application of this text is James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure before God is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So here's the test. Okay, certainly the scribes of Jesus' day practiced a charade, false religion. But Jesus calls the church through the writings of one of his disciples, James, to practice true religion. And the idea of practicing is not intermittent. It's habitual concern and care for those who lack That could be morally, that could be financially, it could be in every possible way. It is that we live to do what Jesus did. Not simply to to condemn the obvious sins of the scribes, but to realize that there's a little bit of that and maybe a lot of it in us. But when you find yourself guilty of selfish pleasure, When you find yourself taking advantage for personal benefit, remember that the king, the divine just king, willingly went to the cross for rebels like you and I 
And there he laid down his life to bear the punishment that you and I deserve so that he can forgive and completely transform and change our lives. You see, if there's no forgiveness, I'm not going to admit who I am. But when I know that there is an exalted king who conquered the grave after giving his life on the cross for my sin, if I know that, I can get real. I can get honest. I can rip off the mask. I can stop the charade. I can get off the stage. And start to be a man. Start to be a young person. Start to be a woman who practices in a decided fashion true religion which is best understood in selfless concern for others because that's the kind of life Jesus lived. So I want you to think, as we close, I want you to think. This might be the shortest sermon I've ever preached. I'm just realizing that. (laughs) I want you to think of one person in your sphere of influence because here's the truth. I can't go back and right all the wrongs in this country and in the world. I can't. I'm not responsible for all of that. But God has given me a sphere of influence. Where I tend to admire success. And God's saying, hey Tim, why don't you stop? And why don't you start focusing on the need that's right in front of you? Which might be a neighbor, might be a classmate, might be a coworker, it might be your wife. That God wants you to serve. To get rid of your scribalness. Ask God to cleanse you. And have the heart and eyes of Jesus. Who gave himself. Not to gain an advantage. But to give an advantage. And may we just start to step back and say God who. Who's next. Who's next. And let's start to make a difference as the body of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we're thankful for your word, which is laser in focus. It convicts, it exposes, it reveals. And Jesus, when we understand that you are the ultimate king, our only Right response is surrender and confession. And it is to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? In the sphere of influence that your sovereign grace has given to me, what do you want me to do today to make a difference? And God, I pray that we as a church will so absorb the mindset of Christ that needs around us start to get met in very powerful and God-glorifying ways. God, if we lived like that, we wouldn't need a sign in front of our church. Our lives would be living letters read and known by all men. And I pray, Lord, this morning, if there is someone here who is wrestling with guilt, wrestling with their own tendency to be a scribe. I pray that you will grant them right now, by the work of your spirit, a heart that is changing and surrendering and repenting and confessing and trusting Jesus. 
Help us as we go today, Lord, to praise the name of the Lord Most High by how we live, not just in song, so that this is not theater. This is real, and this is life-changing as we meet together for the glory of God. We praise you, we bless you, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be dismissed.